You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, good morning. It's a lot of words, isn't it? A lot of passage. <laughs> um, real quick on the serve day, um, one other thing too, just, just to know, is we always also ask the city, we always go to the city of Albany and say, hey, we have a day, we've got a bunch of volunteers, what can we do to serve? And just kind of whatever they give us. So how many of you are part last year of, of the Poison Ivy Day of... 220. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the, when we got to do a bunch of awesome stuff in North Albany. So this year, avoiding poison oak uh, or ivy, we're, uh, there is a project at Bryant Park where there's a ton of overgrown ivy and a bunch of stuff that's going. So there's an actual uh, also city involvement where a team is going to meet us out there. A representative from, from the city is going to meet us out there. Um, so if that kind of sparks in you as well, a good way to serve, um, come ready for that and we can meet them out there at Bryant Park. So it'll be fun. Um, so yeah, today we are finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. I hope my prayer and our prayer as a team here is just that this is like given a taste. Like this has created a hunger for more of Jesus' teaching. It's not just like, cool, I've heard it now. I spent six weeks in it. I never need to read it again. I know what it is. It's all locked tight. Hopefully this is just, a, just tiny nuggets that just spark in us a desire to pursue the teachings of Jesus um, and today we're going to dive into the last chapter of it in, in our Bibles, but kind of the last words of Jesus um, in this sermon. We kind of gives his final teachings to his followers, what they need to know and what they need to be about if they want to see God's kingdom come and God's will be done. So I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase before, Christians are judgmental. Have you ever heard that before? Maybe, maybe you've said it. <laughs> Notice, I want us to notice real quick, way before Jesus even addresses anything about judgment, anything about judging others, anything about that, he has just spent a ton, a ton of time looking at the self, right? The first two chapters were all about checking your heart, checking the self, the Beatitudes, what a life giving life looks like, the kinds of people God wants to populate his kingdom with, the kind of people who truly get that the law of God was a mercy for our hearts, not something to accomplish, right? The law was never about something to accomplish, but it was to be fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ so that all who follow him now can be covered by his grace of his perfection the kind of people that are true salt and light people that bring touches of heaven to earth and revealing the darkness for what it really is. The kind of people who actually love their enemies, not just their neighbors. The kind of people who make regular practice of actively giving away wealth and possessions to those in need instead of hoarding it all for themselves. The kind of people who regularly center themselves with the practices of prayer and offering their bodies as living sacrifices to have their minds renewed in the practice of fasting. The kind of people who have a deep-hearted desire to see God's kingdom come, his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. The kind of people who have their heart oriented towards heaven and the treasure found in the glory of God, not in the glory of having earthly stuff. 
the kind of people who are a non-anxious presence to a world full of worry and stress. This is what the sermon has been about to this point. This is all what comes first. This is the Christian way. Not judgment, not even having a perfectly manicured theology that has no room for anyone else's thoughts. And if God's people do all of that first, then what happens is surprising. Instead of being full of ourselves, when we go through that process, we actually come to the end of ourselves very quickly. We realize that there's no amount of willpower or goodness or smartness we can do to be perfect. And that's the point. These practices and teachings are meant to bring all of us to the point of saying, I too am a sinner in need of salvation. Oh Lord Jesus, be my salvation. Amen? So if you're here today and you've ever thought Christians are the worst and so judgmental, I apologize. And I'm sorry. Right? That was never meant to be the case. And if you're here today and you've been judgmental in your life to others, may you find grace and forgiveness in the teachings of Jesus today. And we're all in kind of both of those categories. Either way, let's all come humbly to the feet of Rabbi Jesus and his teachings, having ears to hear and eyes to see. Let me pray and we'll get into it. God, thank you so much for your words. Thank you for putting us in a good place to just be able to be open-hearted, not closed fists, not closed-minded, but, Lord, open to what you're doing, what you are teaching us, what you taught your followers so long ago is still very, very relevant today. And may we just hear your heart behind these words today. We pray and we ask in your name. Amen. So, chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. Seems kind of straightforward, doesn't it? Most likely followers of Jesus don't want to be judged, right? It's simple logic that if you go around judging other people, it's natural that you too will be judged by others. But judgment by people by others pales in comparison to being judged by God himself. Here, Jesus is not talking about being judged by other people, but by the most holy God himself. So as it is in, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders are puffing themselves up, judging others from the basis and authority of their own pious self-righteousness. But Jesus is saying they are judging people this way, even though it seems like they're crushing it for the Lord, when they are then placed before God himself and judged the same way they are judging others, they will be found starkly unclean. But the way Jesus is phrasing this, he's actually warning his disciples here. It's not a command to not judge at all. It's a warning to be careful and slow in your judgment of another and be aware of your own shortcomings so that grace may abound. Jesus gives this hyperbolic example of what's happening. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is obviously using hyperbole here, and it's easier to notice the speck in someone else's eye when they're the tiniest bit off or wrong, in our opinion, when in fact you have a whole log in your own eye. Isn't it easier to be critical? It's a lot easier to be critical of others 
than recognizing what's really going on. It's ironic and pretty hypocritical. But Jesus has moved to flip the script on his followers. He's been instructing them to observe the religious leaders who do all this outside stuff, this good stuff, but don't deal with their inside stuff. And he wants them to notice their heart posture. But now he's saying, but be careful because you could end up just like them. Remember, at one point, the Pharisees and scribes were in their roles because they wanted to preserve and teach God's law to the people. Some of the more public figures were becoming corrupt in how they were portraying their faith, but their position was noble and came from a long line of people leading others to God. But the ones that were being corrupted by the world were believing themselves to have little to no sin while they were judging others ruthlessly for their unrighteous lifestyles, no matter big or small, without a measure of grace. Notice what Jesus said, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So it was popular in Jesus' time for the rabbis to teach that God had two measures in which he would, he would bring judgment to people, the measures of justice or the measures of mercy. Okay, so justice is getting what they deserve, right? Mercy is not getting what they deserved. And so whichever one of the religious leaders were going to use, that one would then be used against them. So if they're going to use justice, then they would be judged by justice. Use mercy, they would be judged by mercy, right? But I want to argue today that Jesus is actually interjecting a third option of grace. Justice, getting what they deserve. Mercy, not getting what they deserve. Grace, getting what they don't deserve. Right? Jesus is offering a third way of grace to not only not judge others, but to really take the time to think through what has been given to them so that they can be radically generous in their judgment, knowing we are all in need of grace. Jesus is saying, take a good, hard look and see the incredible amount of grace that's been bestowed upon you, even though you didn't deserve it. And realize this, then you will only have that kind of grace to give away. Jesus continues, verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, I don't know about you. I kind of find it a little bit hilarious in its context. It sounds intense, right? It kind of is intense. But it's kind of funny because didn't Jesus just say, like, don't judge people, right? And then he's like, but some are dogs and pigs, right? Like, (laughs) Jesus, didn't you just judge people? Like, I thought you were, were supposed to follow you, right? So what's Jesus doing here? Remember, Jesus has called his followers to love one another and to love their enemies, to not have a judging spirit about them. And this is all good, but the danger becomes then that if, you, if there's no judgment at all, then everything is permissible. In the, just the, the kind of you-do-you culture, it just abounds, right? There's no truth being spoken or people being brought back into the fold of God. There's no accountability for what it actually means to follow God. But there are some who have rejected God and the gospel, proclamation that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The precious pearls of the gospel have been given to those who want nothing to do with it. Now, dogs and pigs is a very specific phrasing. Dogs, pigs have long been, long been used in Jewish culture to refer to various forms of uncleanliness. Okay, unlike the wonderful pets that they are today, dogs were more like wild animals in first century Israel, and they would often feed on dead things. So I'm going to give you two examples. There are many. You can go look them up. This is Exodus 22:31. 31. 
God's saying, you shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Later, 1 Kings 14, 11, Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. Intense, right? Obviously, with a very clean versus unclean culture, no self-respecting Jew would walk up to a dog and start scratching its ears, right? This beast has touched death and represents uncleanliness. But Jesus, it's interesting here, is using this concept as a judgment for the heart. Being a dog isn't just about four paws and a tail and some fur. It's a mind focused on the self and satisfying its own appetite. He could very much be referring to the Pharisees and scribes here without actually calling them out. And look, look at this. We looked at Isaiah 58 last week about what was true and false fasting. Uh, but two chapters before, Isaiah actually gives us insight about false and irresponsible leaders in Israel are likened to these dogs. Look at this, Isaiah 56, 11. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. And that was about irresponsible leaders in Israel. So dogs now have this kind of mentality about them that it's kind of the whatever, whatever they need to do to feed the beast. And Jesus says, verse 6, do not give these dogs what is holy. And I think there's two applications. There's potentially more. You can do your own um, thinking about it. But two applications I want to suggest here. One, this shouldn't discourage evangelism, but more of not giving leadership of God's people to these types of people, of leaders. Not allowing people with this mindset to be the seen leaders in a community. These are holy positions entering people into stages of worship, right? These are holy positions because ushering the people into the very presence of God. This was the main issue Jesus had with the religious leaders, that these men were in these positions that were supposed to be set apart and holy, but they were feeding their own appetite and focusing on their own gain. And this robs God of glory that he and he alone is owed. And two, I want to suggest also holy practices, such as baptism or Eucharist, the communion, Right? These are practices for those who have sanctified themselves for God alone to seek his holiness and righteousness. These practices were not to be casually just given away willy-nilly. Right? If these practices just became for anyone, regardless of heart status, then what is the point? What's the point of the practices of being set apart from what? It would be like giving your most treasured possession to someone who couldn't care less about it the question would be, why did you give it away? Or as Jesus says, why would you do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot? Let me ask a question. What is a pig going to do with a pearl? All right, can't eat it, can't roll in it, right? The precious gem is just going to end up getting trampled and buried and lost because it's not accepted for what it is. Now listen, the gospel is for all, but not all are going to accept the gospel. Some ground is hardened and will reject what it is given. This does not mean don't spread the gospel, but this is a teaching about being intentional, about seeking and discerning fertile ground, hearts that are turned towards the Lord and desiring for more. Can God soften a heart of absolute stone? A hundred percent. 
Can God use us in seemingly impossible situations? 100%. Could there be wisdom in not passing over the many who are open and searching to focus on the one hard-hearted person and those who have rejected the message? Probably, right? Discernment is necessary and important in where God is leading, which no doubt leads us back to prayer and seeking God's way and his discernment. It's no surprise, this is exactly where Jesus goes next. Verse 7, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, I want to nerd out a little bit on language here. Uh, What's cool in these Greek phrases of ask, seek, knock, all all of these are the present tense imperatives, okay? So they're commands in the present tense, okay? What that means is there's all, all three of these are commands that have a beginning, but not necessarily an end, okay? In the Greek language, there's a, there's a form called the aorist form, which it basically means there's a beginning and there's an end and stated in the sentence. So for example, close the door. That's a stated, it's going to happen if you do this sort of thing, right? So if you listen a lot, if not, most prayers are actually in the for, aorist form and you can start thinking about the prayers that we ask God, right? So God, I ask that you give me your peace today. That's an heiress form. That's an open and closed shut case. Like, if he gives you peace, it's done, right? I ask you to give me peace today. God, I ask that you solve this issue in my life. It's open and closed, right? God, please help the Portland Trailblazers just win anything. Like, it's just <laughs> open and closed, right? You know, like special things like that, right? I had to throw it in. But all three of these phrases are here are in the present age, the present, or present form, not present age. It went all Lord of the Rings there. Present form, right? which is not ends in themselves. They're starts and they're ongoing. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Don't stop. You want to get after the heart of God? You want to check yourself from becoming conceited? You want to have discernment and wisdom and who to pursue and who to share the gospel with? For any, everyone who keeps asking keeps receiving. For everyone who keeps seeking, keeps finding. For everyone who keeps knocking, doors keep opening, right? The the thing is, the issue is not God's faithfulness in giving us what we are asking for. He says it's available. It's our inability to continue faithfully asking, right? We know the Father is generous. We know the Father is good. We know the Father wants to give good things, and yet we forget We don't keep asking or keep seeking. We turn to other ways to get what we think we need. And Jesus puts it this way, verse 9, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things for those who ask him? It's obviously a, a kind of a ridiculous example, right? And it's a bit brutal because Jesus is juxtaposing flawed human beings with the perfect heavenly Father above. And when that juxtaposition happens, we are like evil in comparison to God's holy goodness. That's the difference. That's the gap. But even then, if we can understand the slightest bit of generosity and what would be good, then how much more would God, who is above all things... This grace-filled generosity is available and should shape us to be image bearers reflecting our good Father. 
And this generosity from God is fascinating because you'll see the deep connection in what we're about to read in the next line. This is the famous golden rule, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You guys have heard that before? Everyone's heard it, right? Who hasn't heard it? For so long, Jesus' teaching called the golden rule has been linked to, linked to this ethic of reciprocity. Is that saying it right? Anyone smart in here? Thank you. Reciprocity, whether it's by non-Christians, moralists, humanists, whatever, it's just been a constant understanding. If you don't want bad things to happen to you, don't do bad things, okay? Pretty, pretty standard. Most religions actually have a form of this. Okay, I just, I picked up a few um, for your own learning pleasures. So Confucius, who's a famous Chinese teacher and philosopher, you probably heard of Confucianism. My favorite is Confucius once said, he who sits alone in church sits in his own pew. <laughs> That's Confucianism says, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. Okay, it's another form of it. Hinduism, this is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. Interesting spin. Buddhism, Hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Now, none of those are bad things, and there's so many others. You should go look them up later. But notice these are all stated in the negative sense. Okay, even one of Israel's greatest teachers, greatest rabbis, Rabbi Hillel, he taught this. What is harmful to you, do not do to your fellow creatures. That is the whole law. All else is explanation. So how does this translate? If you do not enjoy being robbed, don't rob others. If you do not enjoy being thumped on the head, don't thump people. If you do not enjoy harsh, negative words, do not speak those words to others, right? This is all really good. And it's, but it's hard to get away from the fact that at some level, these are somewhat wrapped up in the protection of the self, Right? Some way, a way of trying to ensure security and safety for the self. Again, not bad, but not exactly what Jesus is teaching here. Now look at this. This is really cool. Jesus says this, this very similar phrase, but in a positive sense. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. What behavior does this promote? Do you enjoy getting flowers? Then go give flowers. Do you enjoy love and acceptance for who you are? Then love and accept others for who they are. <clears throat> Do you enjoy getting random gifts of kindness or blessing people for no reason? Then go do that. Or being blessed for no reason, then go do that. Do you wish others would give you grace when you messed up? What do you think? Go give grace when others mess up. Right, this isn't about having good karma or being nice so that no, no one's angry at you or nothing bad happens to you. This is a core value of active, selfless generosity in the kingdom of heaven. This is a direct reflection of the ask, seek, knock, the keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, that God lavishly and generously responds to for us. And then we turn and seek to lavishly bless others, not replacing or becoming God, obviously, but walking alongside others to the good Father. This is going all the way back to the Beatitudes in chapter 5, where a blessed life means a life-giving life, or blessed to be a blessing. 
Right? Jesus isn't calling for his followers to be religious and moralistically perfect people. In fact, he's been calling out those people who are just being religious and following morals but have no actual heart for God. Jesus is after the full renovation of the heart for his followers. And this is not just a casual, if you want to, lifestyle. This is a sold-out lifestyle, a life that wars against the flesh and has resistance against certain core values of the world. We see this all the time. A lifestyle that is focused on God and others, not the self, and trusting that the good Father will provide for what we need better than we could ever do it for ourselves. This is the kingdom of heaven. Let's continue. Jesus teaches, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, it's interesting, if you have your Bible or even on your smartphone or whatever, the golden rule and entering the narrow gate are coupled in the same paragraph section on most translations. Could it be that actually following this golden rule of life, of the life-giving life, the blessed to be a blessing, constantly pouring out regardless of what the self needs, could it be that actually following this golden rule of life that everyone teaches their kids to do and virtually most people could quote at some level is actually really hard to do? It's actually really hard to not focus on the self. It's difficult. It's actually quite a narrow, singular focus, not an easy, lavish lifestyle that's just cool with whatever. It's fascinating to look at all the teachings of Jesus kind of in a row, right? It's interesting to couple both Jesus saying here, the way is hard that leads to life. And then a few chapters later, Jesus is going to say, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Why would we need rest? Unless Jesus was anticipating that upon the pursuit of life as he is teaching here, it would be hard. We would be desperate to not just be able to do it out of our own willpower. Jesus as a way of conviction for all of us He's saying, if we aren't desperate for rest in Jesus, could I suggest that we are maybe not actively pursuing the narrow road? Right? When we read about the few who find the right path, is it our guttural cry out to the Lord to be counted among the few? Is it just something you feel in your bones, or is it discouraging and feeling more of a sense, well, like, well, that sounds tough. Why bother? Right? Listen, the reason I'm asking that of myself and wrestling with that in our community is because there's no point in trying to fake it. This is going back to the hypocrite statement that from Jesus where people aren't being true to where their heart actually is. They're just acting a part, not actually who they are. And it's highly possible Jesus knew after teaching about the narrow road that some would either be tempted to continue to fake it or be convicted by where they're truly at. So he gives this analogy of a tree and the fruit it will produce being evident of the tree's health. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Talking about this, the inside doesn't match the outside. Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
The healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. It's a pretty spot-on example, right? This section doesn't really take a ton of exposition because it's all right there, but it does take much introspection to truly see where we're at in our internal being. It's easier for a tree to bear what it bears and can't hide the fact that it's diseased or something's wrong with it or, that, or even if it's incredibly healthy and the beautiful fruit that it produces. It's a tree. It can't do what it has to do what its nature is. But human beings have perfected the art of deception from the dawn of time. Page two of our Bibles tells a story of humans being caught in their sin and what happens. Immediately they hide and they blame. Like, it, it wasn't even taught to them. They just knew it, right? But God will not be mocked. God will not be deceived. Jesus is given the opportunity for his followers to, be, to honestly check their hearts and really get after if they want to follow God or not. Because here's the end result if we do not. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is a very, very sobering passage. That is very sobering and humbling. Look at that. Prophesy in your name. Cast out demons in your name. Doing mighty works in your name. For all intents and purposes, that would look like someone that follows God, right? And for him to say at the end of the day, I never knew you. Right? There is no show of Christianity. Just think about the kind of, kind of in our own life, like faking our, the Christian life for our whole Life, and then getting to the end and Jesus saying, I never knew you. What would it all be for? Right? If the previous section dealt with false teachers and prophets, this section deals with false followers. Jesus isn't holding back on anyone in this sermon. But did you notice in Jesus' conclusion in this sermon, there were four pairings of twos, two paths, two trees, Two claims, I knew you, I never knew you. And then as we looked at day one of this series, and we'll end today with reading the end of chapter seven, there's two builders. I think it's safe to teach, at least according to Jesus, that there are not many ways to God. The path is narrow, not wide. The way to God is through following the path that Jesus Christ himself paved for us of denying yourself, picking up your cross and following him. Any other way is man-made and, according to Jesus, will lead to destruction. It is clear in Jesus' sermon, even if you didn't know much more about the scriptures, that Jesus is asking for full, radical submission to him as Lord, for God and his people to be one. All the law and the prophets have always pointed towards that, and now Jesus is fulfilling the destiny of God's people through his life, and we know through his death and resurrection. So church, the question is before us as we conclude the sermon of Jesus. 
Will we as people of the holy God hear these teachings we've covered in the last few weeks and actually put them into practice? To come to God daily, not in a showy, look at how righteous I am kind of a way, but in a posture of surrender and willingness to be made new, to be washed clean, to surrender to a good God who wants to bless his people to then be a blessing to the world. And then to think about a people radically changed by God in this community, in this city, in this neighborhood. Think of what God can do or continue to do in and through us here when we surrender to him. Jesus constantly keeps asking this question throughout the Gospels. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Do we want to know God? Is it a deep desire of our hearts to know and be known by God? Do we want Jesus as our Lord? Do we want to be radically changed and used by God? Let's end by reading the example of the two builders and ask ourselves which builder we desire to be. This is chapter 7, 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Our prayer is that Hub City would be a people who want to be that first builder, that we would be a people eager to seek God and to live a life-giving life, to continue to sit at the feet of Jesus and let his teachings guide our everyday life, not just as our rabbi, but as our Lord.